Hello and welcome to Student Affairs Live, the online learning community for student affairs educators. I am your host, Heather Shea Gasser from Michigan State University. Today I am grateful for the opportunity to engage in a dialogue about the intersections between race, ethnicity, culture, and identity within the LGBTQ Latinx community and the implications of these intersections for student affairs. We welcome your comments, questions, and participation. Follow along on the back channel and tweet to the hashtag HigherEdLive. If you're watching as a staff today, we'd love to know who you are and where you're at, um, and we'll give you a little shout out. And as always, thank you to my good friends and colleagues, Valerie Ruska and Alex Sylvester, for helping me out with the back channel again today. In a moment, I'm going to introduce you to the eight panelists who have joined me, but first I need to give um, a shout out to those who make Student Affairs Live possible. We are a part of the Higher Ed Live Network. You can tune in to episodes with my amazing friend and co-host Tony Duty and me on Wednesdays at 1 p.m. Eastern Time. If you're unfamiliar with past episodes, we highly recommend that you check out and favorite the archive link that we are tweeting out now. Higher Ed Live is produced by M. Stoner, a marketing and communications firm that works with education institutions on branding, strategy, web design, and more. We're about to share a link to M. Stoner's new ebook on information architecture. A well-thought-out, well-organized structure for your content will make it easier for visitors to find information and engage with your institution. The ebook includes best practices and examples. Download it now. Student Affairs Live is also exclusively sponsored by ACPA, College Student Educators International. ACPA believes that Student Affairs Live is one of the many ways that you can be innovative with your own professional development. The call for programs for ACPA 2017 is now out. We are tweeting out a link where you can submit your program proposal today. All right. So on each episode of Higher Ed Live and Student Affairs Live, my co-host, Tony Duty and I endeavor to identify panelists who bring a multitude of perspectives, experience levels, identities, and institutional types to the conversation. No panel is perfect, yet on my last episode, we missed the opportunity to include a Latinx voice as we discussed the shooting in Orlando whose victims were primarily Latinx and LGBTQ. As host, I see this as a problem and a mistake that I own, and I am grateful to the vocal people on Twitter who engaged with me and who made space for this conversation to happen today. In identifying my own positionality as white cisgender woman who uses she, her, hers pronouns, I recognize the privileges I hold based on these identities, and I know that feedback provides an opportunity for me to do my own self-work and learn and nearly two decades into my career in student affairs, I'm still learning. So after the last episode, we began working towards today's show, identifying panelists and discussing how to engage in a deeper and richer dialogue about these intersections between race, culture, identity, and student affairs work from an LGBTQ Latinx perspective. So in our preparation, the panelists and I had a number of group hangouts to talk. Uh, Keith stated this goal. How do we move beyond simply desiring to provide initial support in the wake of incidents to getting folks to a place where there is consciousness that doesn't cause harm. How do we change larger systems? So I deeply appreciate this goal and I look forward to the conversation today. We have eight phenomenal individuals um, on, on the call. We're going to tweet out a link right now where you can read their detailed bios and I'm going to have each of them introduce themselves to you so you know a little bit about their backgrounds and connection to this topic. So we're going to start with Trace. 
Hi everybody, my name is Trace Camacho and I currently am the Assistant Dean of Students and Director of Fraternity and Sorority Programs at the University of Arizona. I recently completed my PhD in Higher Adult and Lifelong Learning at Michigan State University where my dissertation focused on the experience of gay Latino men in higher education. Um, as identities that I carry with me, um, I identify as a gay Latino male, um, also first generation college student. And also some previous work besides my dissertation work, I previously was a research associate with the National Study of LGBT Student Success. Great. Thanks, Trace. Thanks for being here. Dora. Buenos dias. Good afternoon, um, everybody. My name is Dora Frias. I am currently the program director of the Latino Student Services Program at the University of Colorado, Denver. Um, I have worked in multicultural centers, student support services, TRIO programs, um, and now specifically working in an identity-based center focusing on the experiences of Latinx students on college campuses. Uh, I use she, her, her pronouns. I was born in Durango, Mexico and grew up on the borderlands of Texas and Mexico. Um, and those are the things that very much inform my identity and what I bring to this space today. Thanks so much, Doros. Keith, welcome. Unmute myself, sorry about that. Hi, uh, my name is Keith Garcia. I am at the University of Minnesota Twin Cities campus. I work in the Office of Fraternity and Sorority Life, advising our Panhellenic and Multicultural Greek Councils. Um, my identities are Latino. I am also a gay male. Uh, pronouns are he, him, his. Uh, I think my interest and focus within higher education are rooted around identity development, particularly intersectionality and the importance of approaching our work with an intersectional lens. And so um, that that's uh, kind of why I'm and where I'm coming from. Thanks so much, Keith, for being here today. Zahas. Hello, everyone. My name is Zahas Martinez, and I am a coordinator in the Office of Fraternity and Story Life at Colorado State University. They, them, theirs pronouns are what value and empower me. I am a trans, queer, identified uh, professional in student affairs and recognizing the roots of indigenous Mexico and trying to identify what that means to me as a second generation U.S. American and processing how all of that connects to student affairs. So, glad to be here. Thank you so much for joining us. Julio. Hey, I'm muting myself too. Uh, buenos dias, buenas tardes. I am Julio Herreoyola. Uh, I use they series pronouns or any pronouns that are used respectfully, please. I'm currently assistant director of LBGTQ services at Massachusetts Institute of Technology. I grew up in Mayagüez, Puerto Rico. Uh, I went to school in Miami and Orlando, Florida, and I've lived between the Bay Area and Southern California for five years before relocating here. Um, among many other things within my job, I work closely with our Office of Multicultural Programs to provide intersectional support, education, and advocacy regarding our minoritized students on our campus, as well as with our Violence Prevention and Response Unit on healthy relationships, consent, and gender privilege, as well as some allyship and bystander work with conflict management at MIT. Great. Julio, thanks for joining us. Ray. Well, good morning, good afternoon. My name is uh, Ray Plaza. I serve as the Director of Diversity and Inclusion here at Santa Clara University. I use he, him, his pronouns. I also serve as Chair of the ACPA uh, Latino, Latina, Latinx Network. Um, my parents are from Cabo Rojo, Puerto Rico, and I grew up in Miami. And in my work, I 
do a lot of stuff with um, the training of faculty and staff around LGBTQ related issues and within our campus community. Thanks so much for being here, Ray. Marcela. Buenos dias, Marcela Ramirez, um, California born and bred. Uh, spent my entire life here. Uh, she, her, hers pronouns. I've been in uh, student affairs, higher education for 10 years, background in student life, uh, career center work, uh, international services, multicultural center specifically. I'm now a fifth year full time PhD student. This is it. This is the last year um, at UC Riverside. I study uh, cultural centers in higher education. Um, I'm also the voting student regent on the University of California Board of Regents. This is important because I'm the first out queer woman in this position and the first out queer woman of color on the board. So thank you for having me. Thank you so much. Brianna. Hi, everyone. My name is Brianna Serrano. Uh, I am currently the coordinator of the Pride Center at California State Polytechnic University, Pomona. My pronouns are they, them, and theirs. Um, my research interests include uh, serving undocumented students, specifically queer and trans Latinx students, and their academic challenges and identity management that they, um, that they have to navigate. And I'm also one of the people of color co-chairs for the Consortium of Higher Education LGBT Resource Professionals, and I'm really excited to be here. Great. It is wonderful to have all of you on today, and it's awesome to see so many people tuning in as well. Um, so we're going to start with just clarifying language, because um, I think that's an important place to begin. So Zahas, can you tell us what we mean when we say Latinx? I can definitely start, uh, particularly since I've spent some significant time reflecting on it. Latinx is a descriptor predominantly used to identify folks of Spanish or Latin American heritage and descent. The way in which Latinx developed really has some significant draws to what the X signifies, particularly looking at Latin uh, as a word and then Latino and Latina encompassed in the binary of masculine and feminine in the Spanish language. And even when gender inclusion became part of the conversation with Latina or Latinoa as folks used to try and distort some of what the Spanish language has in some of those binaries, Latinx really became the term to help both include more folks and also defy some of those expectations that come from using the Spanish language and challenging some of these actual systems of patriarchy that are in really ingrained in the culture. Great. Other folks want to share what this means to them and if you've faced any resistance in using this word. I'll, I'll add a piece um, about just the, some of the pushback around Latinx and uh, the pushback being that it's, it's a buzzword and that it doesn't really address any of the systemic issues within the uh, Spanish language. Um, and I think that for me, this is a, a both and. No, does it address the system? No, it doesn't. And uh, it is a way in which we can start to uh, improve and, and address some of the inequalities in, in our language. Um, and then I think it's also important for us to name that where our privileges sometimes lie in, in the ways in which we push back on language, right? Mm -hmm. um, and as a cis queer woman, I, I've got to do my own work around around some of that those pieces and and work to embrace when students are telling me this is a lang a word that I use to identify uh, really trying to work and understand why that is. Yeah, I think of it as a, a calculated disruption in the same way that um, 
women XN or women YN is trying to tell a different story is trying to support a complicated narrative. Um, so I think for folks, um, Latinx says that, right? And it gives us the opportunity to say what it means to us um, and that the X is not the same for everybody, but let's start a conversation. Mm -hmm. Another element that I think it needs to be named is in the conversations that we have with each other or with our students based on where we are, where they are, where what informs those identities is uh, just the connection to the term Latino, Latina, Latinx in general, right? Versus uh, other identities like if they identify as Chicano or Chicana first, or if they identify as if they use the term Hispanic, right? And thinking about the history behind some of these terms and where, why someone may or may not choose uh, to kind of feel some affinity in using this and embracing that, um, which you know we all, I think. We have at least nine possibly different perspectives right now on this panel on that very, very same question. Mm -hmm. Anyone else want to jump in? All right, let's move on. To, yeah, go ahead, Trace. Um, just as uh, it was just brought up, that Latinx is a broad diaspora of, of many different identities, and that it's not just this one blanket um, identity group that has all similar experiences, there's some shared experiences, but it's a broad diaspora of people that make up this identity that we have called uh, Latinx. Great. Thanks for pointing that out. It's clear that language matters, um, and I also recognize what Dora mentioned as far as the privilege related to that. So let's, let's move on to talking about this intersection of culture, religious faith, spiritual practice, um, race and ethnicity. Like how did that all influence experience with gender, performance, and sexuality. Uh, Marcel, I think you're going to start on this one. Yeah, yeah, I'm going to jump in a little bit um, in terms of, um, I guess I'll just start with uh, contextual stories. So um, my mom is a strong, strong person of, of faith and practice, but always told me that, you know, faith and spirit and the divine is here. And my relationship with the divine is a conversation that I'm constantly in, that it wasn't in a building and that it wasn't necessarily in the in a book. That the written word can be powerful, but that my conversation with myself and the divine is really, um, I think, the mandate um, and the thing that propels me to function in all of my excellence and all of my truth. So I think the piece about um, truth-telling and spirit and divinity um, and ancestral power is something that I got um, very strongly from my mother. Um, and I, I want to sort of like give her that. And I think that I'm in constant conversation with my ancestors. Um, this is what we do. Dia de los Muertos is about cultura. Dia de los Muertos is about a lineage. Dia de los Muertos is about owning the places that we come from, right? It's not um, trendy. It's not a, a trendy thing. It's not a fancy to put on some paint and, uh, you know, light a candle and put a sticker on it. Like, that's that's not what this is about, right? I think that there is faith and there is strength and there is power behind all of that. And I think that how it shows up for me in terms of uh, gender and sexuality really was about living my truth. So um, when I came out to my mom, I said, you know what, mom, you always told me to be who I am. You told me, like, not to tell a lie, not to keep things from you. So I need to be honest about who I am, the decisions that I'm making, and how I'm going to move forward. Um, I have a supportive family now. I wasn't always like that. I, I don't want to um, bypass the difficulty around that coming out process. Um, but I do want to say that it was very much based in um, faith and tradition and my cultura and also in really connecting to 
and feeling that if we if we have ancestral trauma, we can also have ancestral healing, and that I can do something about that, right? That I can insert some type of um, divinity and power to release perhaps um, the tension and the inability for my ancestors to be out in the way that I am out now. So I think that's how I wanted to connect it and sort of begin this conversation I'm around religion, faith, spirituality, cultura, and how it connects to us um, as a people within our chosen gender and sexual identities. Julio, do you want to follow up on that? I know during our prep we talked about you talking next. Sure. There are just a couple of things that, uh, that come up for me when I think about this, right? Um, and as far as our gender expression or how we embrace sexuality, how we identify, um, you know, as far as connecting it to faith and spirituality, um, I'm not, I don't particularly practice any faith. Um, I'm not a religious person. Um, so that's also something to name and give space for in among, you know, our community. Um, and thinking about the expectations that come with that, with being in this community and the heavy, uh, not the heavy attention that's placed on it, but how that is prevalent, right? How it's prominent. Um, and thinking about when people are understanding themselves and their identities, uh, we can feel pride in some spaces and around some people and simultaneously hold some internalized racism and internalized homophobia in others, and it's a lot to navigate based on what we have around us. Um, the messages that we're receiving, if they're positive or negative, even when we're coming out, how we're socialized, really have a, a significant impact on that. Um, and, you know, in thinking about familia also, uh, if we have, for example, um, our end-of-year recognition ceremonies or uh, graduation ceremonies that really embrace the, the success of one as the success of the family, for some, we don't, we don't have our family of origins behind us. Uh, we have chosen family, and we have to, we're making it on our own, or some of our students may be making it on, on their own. So they're embracing, you know, themselves and leading into success on their own terms, right? Um, and that may be at the expense of being, uh, you know, dispelled from their families for not holding up a certain standard of what a man is supposed to act like or a woman is supposed to act like. Uh, and holding that integrity and that authenticity with you as you're moving forward and trying to overcome a lot of that. Anyone else want to jump in? Um, if possible, I'd like to jump in. For sure. So um, I think for me, I wasn't raised in a Catholic household. I was raised in what now I understand to be evangelical Christian. And I was always told um, it's not Adam and Eve, it's Adam and Steve. And so in my mind, I thought I was going to burn in hell. Um, and when I realized how I identify, sexually speaking, um, that was hard for me. And both of my parents were raised Catholic. Um, and I just want to give a name to Catholicism from my purview. I mean, we were indigenous bodies in this land, and we were colonized by the Spaniards. And so that came to us in a very violent um, way to where we were forced to act a certain way, and even two-spirit folks. And so I just want to name that. That comes from colonization. That doesn't come from the root of what, where I feel my ancestors came from. And so when I came out as gender nonconforming to my parents, um, probably like within the past year, that was hard for me because I was raised in this environment to where you're supposed to act a certain way and dress a certain way if you're female assigned at birth. And so at the same time, recognizing and telling myself that probably my ancestors were too spirited in some way. And so this is affirming for me. And my mom always tells me, Miha, 
and she calls me Mia, <laughs> she said, you know, um, you wouldn't be here if God didn't want you to be. And so I don't conform to any specific religious identity, but I have my own relationship with God, and I'm good. Awesome. Anyone else want to share a little bit about their perspective on this tension? I, I do have a piece I'd like to add, Heather. Yeah. Is, um, I think for me, so I, I, I grew up Catholic. I identify as culturally Catholic. For me, my my culture is very, very tied to the uh, to the Catholic religion. Um, and I, I, I remember growing up, for me, the very clear, distinct messages that I got specifically as a Latina woman, what was expected of me. And uh, uh, in terms of finding a husband, right, and raising kids, and and even getting messages about gender performativity and what what that meant and as I began I can't come out I struggled with this this piece around am I not gonna be Latina enough right because I'm not gonna have a man or my family will look different um, there were also pieces for me around uh, my hair right and as Latina women like oh, our beauty is so tied to our, our, our hair and I, I struggled a lot with not feeling comfortable in the long hair for a long time and it it, it was this tension that existed for me um, around how do I make sense of my Latino, Latina, Latinx identity at the intersection of gender, sexual orientation, uh, gender expression, and, and all those things that, that have been complicated and have taken me a while to understand for myself um, and is still something that I'm consistently uh, negotiating. So you just mentioned intersectionality. I think that's kind of at the crux of a lot of what we're talking about today. Um, and Keith, can you kind of briefly define what it means um, to think intersectionally and how we go about, you know, maybe in the second part, go about fostering that um, perspective in our approach in student affairs work? Sure. So I, I think that when it comes to folks who ha have our own identities that are often targeted or marginalized, Intersectionality is is it's language that we don't necessarily use, but it's experiences that we have and things that we know, right? So for me, my 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 identity as a gay man is inextricably linked to my identity as a Latino, and they don't necessarily operate in separate spaces. And sometimes they can. It depends on the context of where I am. But um, intersectionality and and the approach to kind of understanding the world from this lens of I don't just look at this as a man. I don't just look at this as a gay man, I don't just look at this as a Latino, all of those things are working together. And so being conscious of that and how that informs my work, you know, I work with predominantly women-identified women students here at the university, and so um, I have to take into account that what does it mean when I'm working with them as a cisgendered male um, and how my communication with them might be perceived or what, what it is that I'm doing with them that might cause some tension or things that aren't aren't driving because they don't necessarily have the same lens that I do. So I think with respect to intersectionality, it's about understanding who you are, understanding where you're coming from, the perspectives that you lend to the, the dialogue and the experience that you're having with other folks. Um, and then when it comes to student affairs work and thinking a little bit more broadly, I think it's about folks kind of doing some self-exploration, learning about who they are, taking the time to figure out what your identities are, how salient are those identities to you. Um, I think about, you know, the... Abe's and uh, Abe Jones McEwen, uh, multiple dimensions of identity, right? The saliency of those things, but also the meaning-making component and how certain things might 
lend themselves to how you perceive of what's going on in the world around you or in the experiences that you have. Um, one of the things that I always tell people, and I'm really intentional about this, is I work with two very different groups in the realm of fraternity and sorority life. And the reason for that is largely based on how I understand how students have been supported historically in this particular facet within higher education. So, you know, being a part of a historically Latino fraternity for me, um, that, that experience has informed my understanding that maybe when I come into work in the morning, I need to start working with the things that my multicultural Greek students need first. Because the moment I step into the world of Panhellenic, which is this really dominant space, it's really difficult for me to get out of that world. And so I'm really intentional that when I come in in the morning, I'm checking my emails and filtering through them to ensure that the answers to those students who, within this institution, sometimes don't always feel supported, feel like there's someone here that's supporting them and doing the work that they, they expect from the institution that they've chosen to attend. So um, I think that that's how intersectionality has influenced my work. It's how I like to dialogue with colleagues and peers about how they might be able to um, consider intersectionality in their work. Um, I, you know, I was fortunate enough to work with a good friend of mine, Nathan Olmeda, and one of my mentors, Juan, Dr. Juan Guardia, on an article about being gay Latino men um, and how that influences our approaches to our work within fraternity and sorority life. So um, those, those are the kinds of things that I think inform approaches is how are you taking the time to learn about who you are, what you bring to the table, and how does that manifest itself, manifest itself in your work? Definitely. Shout out to Juan. We wanted him to participate today, but in the process of moving to Cincinnati. So. Yeah. <laughs> Other folks who um, want to talk a little bit about intersectional approaches to your work? Marcella? Yeah, so, so really quickly, I'm going to jump in broadly in terms of um, folks thinking about the specific departments, areas, the way your university is structured. And, and I want to start by saying this. Um, students don't experience their lives or the world in the way that we structure them. Yes. Flat out. So, so Kimberly Crenshaw's gift of intersectionality, right, we, we've got to give that shout out, that gift of intersectionality really talked about race and ethnicity being at the core. At that time, race and ethnicity at the core of gender, but I, I want to emphasize that if you're doing LGBT work, you've got to also do the work of race and ethnicity or else mm -hmm. it's not intersectionality. So um, race and ethnicity at the core, right, and LGBT, race and ethnicity and ability, race and ethnicity and colorism. We've got to talk about that. We had um, a little bit of comments earlier about, you know, the look, right, uh, the skin color, the hair, um, the manifestations of our face, our walk, our talk, um, the structure of our body. Um, I think for the Latinx community, like specifically, um, we might be Latinos, Chicanos, whatever that might be, but racially, our racial constructs um, are across the board. Um, giving shout outs to, you know, Afro-Latinos that I know are absolutely powerful and that do this work, right? Um, this notion that there are white Latinos. That, that is, I, I will admit, a conflicting piece for me, but for some folks, that is their reality. Uh -huh. And that is how they identify, and we've got to talk about that. So colorism um, also is an aspect when we're talking about intersectionality and how it, how it manifests in um, racial and ethnic bodies. And really, without, um, without complicating this term, um, we cannot serve our students well. So we have got to complicate this in every single area um, across our institutions. Can I add on something? For sure. And I would say, um, you know, and looking at retention, 
for students. I mean, if they don't see themselves and what we're doing, they're not going to stay. They're not going to have a sense of belonging. And I remember during an interview for my current position, the dean of students asked me, Brianna, what are you going to do if you want to do collaborative intersectional work? And somebody says that they don't want to do that or maybe something they haven't done before. And I'd say, well, you need to serve the students or you shouldn't be working here. And in all honesty, that's what we need to do. Um, because they feel so much more affirmed when those conversations happen or they see themselves even within us. And I think that's something for folks to keep in mind as well for hiring managers to realize that there's less queer and trans people of color that are directors of LGBT work and also in higher senior level positions and creating a pipeline for us and not staying in the position for over 30 years, but creating access points for us as well. To the, to the point, I think two pieces that stood out to me. The first from Marcela where she talked about colorism within the community and, and the consistent dialogue that I have in the spaces I operate in about um, what it means to be a Latino uh, man that can't pass for white, right? Because I do have uh, Latino friends, fraternity brothers, colleagues who can and who utilize that privilege in very different ways. Um, or don't use it at all. And so I think that that's a really important part for me about the conversation sometimes around intersectionality that just because, <clears throat> you know, we are Latino men or identify similarly in those ways, just how we show up in the world and how people see us and perceive of us is going to have an effect on how they engage us, how we engage with them. Those things are really important to note. And this is the point that um, Brianna made about the... The, the role of representation and seeing people. You know, I, I talk to folks all the time about how troubling it is sometimes in my bubble, in my world of fraternity and sorority life, that um, to, to be a director often, it's almost as if you have to have this requisite experience with these predominantly white fraternity and sorority communities. Yeah. But if you don't have experience with culturally based fraternities and sororities, mm. you know, we can kind of, we can look past that. And that's problematic. And I think that that's something that I work really hard to challenge in the work that I do, because my expectation is that if you're going to come into this space, if you're going to facilitate this work, then there's an expectation that you have consciousness of the entirety of the community you're going to work with, and that you be prepared to do that, whether you look like me or not. Because right, I don't necessarily prescribe to the, the notion that you have to look like me or be from my community to serve me well, but you surely should have some con uh, co context about who you're working with and understanding and knowledge and competency. And so those two things kind of stood out to me, and I think that those are things that really drive me passionately towards this conversation why intersectionality is so important. I also want to in insert uh, uh, some thoughts in here, because everything, like I, I dropped the mic a few times in, front, in my head from everything that y'all are saying, because it's, it's right on point. And I also want to name, you know, for really everybody, uh, we learn from mistakes, right? We're going to be making mistakes as we go along if we want to work and strive towards inclusion. And to really be careful around asking students to prove their identities, right? Because yes. of the multiplicity of all of our communities, right? Whether, whether it's their involvement in certain organizations, whether they are activists, right? Like, because of everything that has already been stated, those are the reasons why we have Latinos involved in the Black Lives Matter movement, right? We exist in all of these spaces, right? Conversations around immigration and citizenship, it's not Latinx exclusive, right? We have folks from all over that are part of these conversations. Um, so to really be conscious and, and, and think about that before making that decision to ask somebody to kind of prove or validate their existence. And they have to be doing that on a regular basis. I mean, there's a lot of femme shaming that happens. There's a lot of 
checklists in regards to uh, identities that exist, like bisexuality and queerness and pansexual identity, and also transness, if you're red or not. Um, and so I think that's something important for us to include in our regular discourse as student affairs professionals, whether or not we know that students are LGBT. All right, so I'm going to move to Trace. Um, Trace, within your research, you have looked at uh, an intersectional approach to fraternity work, for sure. Um, and maybe you can unpack the dominant narratives around kind of ecological models, borderlands theory, and some of the things that you drew upon when you were doing that research. Sure. Um, so first, um, it's important to point out that higher education is not the first scholarly um, community to take up the work of studying queer Latina X, queer Latinx topics. These topics have been studied for a long time in other fields, ethnic studies, literary theory. So um, I think it's important to acknowledge that because as a researcher within higher ed, I drew upon those other fields of study to inform my practice. Um, and I think that's important that we don't just look within a higher ed with doing our own research, that there's a wealth of knowledge um, already out there about this topic. Um, so my research drew a lot on Borderlands Theory, which is um, Laura Ambledua's work um, from her book. Um, and I really used it to kind of push this idea of intersectionality of kind of what everyone said, it's not one or the other, it's both and. It's actually this third space where I'm both and I'm recreating what I'm defining for myself what it means to be a gay Latino. Um, acknowledging that, you know, for me that is a very cisgender, um, you know, narrative for me and in my study because um, I'm primarily working with men um, and I use the term Latino um, so I drew suits from all over but I think for me it's important to have that kind of theoretical foundation because students are, are constructing how they view their identity all the time, whether you're thinking of eight shows in the queue and in their meaning-making culture. But for me, Borderlands Theory really helped me bring the idea that students are um, developing how they define their identity, recreating their identity, recreating in ways that sometimes faster than we as student affairs professionals can keep up programmatically, advisingly, um, and how we advise students with how they think about their identity. So I think it was a way for me to think fluidly about um, identity and the way students enact um, and kind of define their identity. Um, and I layer that with an ecological approach in my work because I think it's important, especially when talking about um, identity-based issues, it's not about how a student defines that identity internally, it's also about all these ecological layers that play into that, their peer group, the institution they're in, the geographical place um, that they're situated within this country, how their religious practice, as we talked about briefly, played into it, how their, um, you know, Mass, their identities playing with. So there's this whole ecological level that's influencing how students are enacting or envisioning or um, thinking about their identities that we need to take into account. It's not just, you know, what student organizations are choose to join or not. It's not about just, you know, who they, um, where they come from. It's all those things taken in totality with it. It's not just one thing that we need to focus on when supporting um, uh, queer Latinx students. Um, I think Another important piece, and I know we're going to get to this a little bit later, is that, you know, in my work I look not just at fraternity story members, seven of my participants happen to be fraternity story members, but I think it's also important that we have students who are pushing the boundaries of, you know, what is what people think is acceptable in these traditional male or traditionally gendered spaces. Um, so, you know, gay members in Latino fraternities, some of them are having a poor experience, some are having a really great experience. And we need to acknowledge that not all, there's not just this 
um, deficit narrative about this experience for students who um, identify as queer Latinx. And I think, you know, some of the great work being put out right now is really challenging those dominant deficit model narratives. But I think there's a lot of great perspectives that have already been brought up about that. So I want to talk about what Dora mentioned earlier around structure and um, and think a little bit about kind of how we're structuring our our student affairs divisions. Many of you on here um, work in multicultural affairs offices or LGBT offices. You know, several folks from fraternity and sorority life. Um, what are some of the effective models for building collaborative spaces across student affairs, and how can we specifically make LGBT spaces more? welcoming to students of color and multicultural affairs offices, more welcoming to LGBT students. So, Brianna, do you want to start with that? Yeah, sure. Um, I think, first of all, like I said before, pipeline is an issue, right, <laughs> for queer and trans people of color, especially Latinx folks and black folks, for gaining access to these types of positions. Um, and I also want to name that if folks are white and they're in director positions, coordinator positions, whatever it may be, I think it's incredibly important for white folks to hold each other accountable and also for them to name, yes, I am a part of this white supremacist society and everything is built for my privilege. And so I think naming that um, may resonate differently with students and maybe more in a positive way than just existing as a white person. Um, and I think also creating those intentional um, bridges with other colleagues on campus that do race work. And I think that's important to do a work on anti-blackness within the LGBT community, or do a session on racism that even occurs, or microaggressions, or the use of new terms that communities of color use, like Latinx, or Joto, or Jota, or um, other words that we're reclaiming, or same gender loving. And so, not just this narrative of this white dominant, uh, dominant discourse. And so, I think it's important to be visible, to create programs that include intersectionality, um, and I think one thing that I've noticed for myself, at least, is that it has become a space for students of color to feel comfortable, but then I have white students sharing with me that they don't maybe feel as included uh, because, you know, I'm so centered on queer trans people of color experiences. And how do I have those conversations with students and knowing that they're moving along in their identity development through Helms um, or through anything else that they're experiencing. And so just me being conscious of that when I work with white students and how I may come across as a person of color. Mm -hmm. Dora? Yeah, um, you uh, asked about you know effect effective models, and I think that there are probably folks that are doing good work, and I don't know if there is an effective model yet, right, of how of how to exactly do this. Uh, in in the wake of Orlando, I really struggled a lot with, you know, if I send students to the multicultural space, my space included, um, will they feel validated in their queer identity? And if I send students to the LGBT office, will that that office be able to support the complexities of the of the racial piece? And and so then I, I felt a lot of personal responsibility um, as you know one of few uh, queer Latinas on this campus. I don't even know of any others um, that I had to hold that for students, and that's exhausting. And I'm experiencing my own trauma at the same time. Um, and if I don't show up, then who's going to do it, right? 
Um, so I think it's important for us to name that that weight on us as as professionals individually. Um, and because of that, we've got to be working with our allies. We've got to be working in conjunction with folks, supporting Latino, Latina, Latinx students on this campus can't just be my, my job, right? And as I look across institutions, um, you know, at my previous institution, I was the only Latina in the entire division of student affairs. So, you know, we don't have representation in the ways, uh, like Brianna mentioned, the, the pipeline, right? It's just not there. Um, so it's a, it's a complex issue, and I keep saying, like, the Latinos are coming. We're a very young population. We are going to, they're going to be showing up at our institutions. Um, and inevitably, because we're going to have more Latinos at our institutions, we're going to have more Latinx QTPOC students at our institutions that are experiencing their identities at multiple intersections and, and, and in variety of different identity centers, we've got to be focusing and centering this work on intersectionality because uh, that's just that's, that's what our students are going to be coming to us with. And I think also including the trauma that our students may be coming in with mm -hmm. um, because this is something that they experience from birth, right? And now so many more of them are coming out at a younger age, I notice. Um, but then acknowledging the national uh, climate for them, not just with Orlando, but last year 26 trans women of color were murdered. Mm -hmm. This year at least 14 were murdered, mm -hmm. mostly black and Latinas and you know trans women. And so I think it's important to for us to do recognition that that's actually happening and which bodies are being policed and which ones aren't. Um, so I think that comes with the intersectionality as well. Yeah, I think the challenging of the structures really is our, our role, I believe, um, as change agents at universities. Um, we've got to push past uh, the limitations of the structures, right? We've got to push, push past the walls that get created. Um, those line items sometimes go to specific departments, right? Where does the money flow? Um, how What are the hiring practices of the institution? I think that we have got to have critical inquiry about the structure itself. Um, we also have to have critical inquiry about what does safety mean for you? Are you just uncomfortable? Or are you actually physically unsafe in this space? Right? I think we've got to question that, right? Because sometimes like notions of safety are sometimes used to uphold the structure. And I think that we've got to complicate that narrative as well. So as much as we can push back on um, hiring practices, actual funding, line items, where we get um, critical collaborations from um, where we where we decide um, the nonprofits, community organizations, institutions that we want to work for, the kind of money that we want to receive rather than um, a donor defining how we have to use it. Um, we've got to really dig into all the nooks and crannies of this. So I think um, structurally I see this um, more at the board level than I had ever before. So um, the more we can push back, uh, the more we can do better for our students. Zahis, can you talk a little bit about your work in fraternity and sorority life and how you've fostered collaborative spaces and initiatives um, and, and what that looks like within that functional area? Oh, I think you're on mute still. Okay. There All you right. Go. You're good. For me, the way that that has shown up significantly is being able to be a visible trans non-conforming individual of a fraternity or a sorority and actually doing the work. So I'm consistently in front of students, I'm consistently having these conversations with folks who've yet to realize and see a visible person 
from a trans experience in a binary system, in these experiences that talk about brotherhood and sisterhood and value what it means to be alumni or alumnus and processing like some of those components. So what I'm recognizing day in and day out, particularly with the multicultural students that I work with in the Multicultural Greek Council, is we're having these consistent conversations of what does it mean to hold the Latinx identity and to be doing this work in a predominantly white institution? How can you help us better understand, are we welcoming to queer people? Are we actually helping some of that understanding of, yes, we are inclusive to trans-identified individuals. And when we say women, we're talking about women. We're not talking about females. And when we're talking about men, we're talking about men, not males. And just disrupting some of those assumptions that come up within that binary space. What I appreciate about this institution that I'm currently at, CSU, the recognition of my presence, even though I'm in fraternity and sorority life, doesn't keep me in fraternity and sorority spaces. In fact, at Centro, our center on campus that works primarily with Latinx students had a discussion and wanted to create more discussions around what does it mean to use Latinx, see Latinx, and actually have a discourse around why Latinx has evolved from Latina or Latinoa. How do we talk to you know our uh, resource center because they're getting uh, they're talking through the GLBTQ squared A um, resource center talking about how is it that we not only talk about our queer and trans folks of color, but also our queer and trans folks of color in fraternities and sororities? Do they feel comfortable acknowledging that fraternities and sororities have this systemic challenge, this systemic heterosexist, gender binary um, you know, processing of what it means to have this student experience? There's a lot of that that's happening. And even uh, being able to volunteer at the national level with some of the things that Out in Greek and Lambda 10 are doing through Campus Pride, being able to have those national conversations with Latinx fraternities and sororities has been such a powerful experience, talking to them and saying, if you want a trans-inclusive policy, great. I want to help walk you through that. If you don't want a trans-inclusive policy, great. I'll walk you through that. If you don't know yet, let me help you find out how to make some of these conversations happen. Let's work through some of the educational discourse that's needed to talk about educating members about what it means to have a fully validating and empowering queer and trans space. So it's just phenomenal that some of the organizations that are leading some of that work and leading some of those experiences are coming from Latinx fraternities and sororities. And that just happens to me that I can bring that expertise into working with fraternities and sororities on my campus. I, I just want to note also the, the point that Zahis makes. First of all, to thank Zahis for the work that Zahis has done, because as somebody who's part of another Latino fraternity, Zahis's work has shown up in the, the things that we consider when we look at our policy and the things that we want to um, embody as a, as a Latinx fraternity. So thinking from that perspective, like it's important to thank those that are doing the work. And so I wanted to publicly yes. do that and thank Zahis for that work. Um, the other part of it was the part that Zahis spoke to with respect to the, the intentionality of being engaged in spaces that don't usually wait for us to show up. Most people have some pretty uh -huh. hard perceptions about me when I mentioned that I work in fraternity and sorority life. And I'm OK with that. I've seen all of the looks. But I think what, what's important for me is my multicultural Greek council also has a fraternity founded by gay men for all men in the form of Delta Lambda Phi. And so how am I also yep. thinking about those groups, right? Like, you know, this, this is about Latinx and LGBTQ identity together and how they work. And so when things like Orlando happen, I'm not just reaching out to my MGC students 
right? I'm reaching out to the Panhellenic women in the community that I work with because there are queer identified women within our community who maybe aren't as visible. And how am I helping the students that have dominant identities have those conversations? And if they don't know, the Aurora Center here at the University of Minnesota might, or the Gender and Sexuality Center might know. So can we get them in touch with those folks? Because they might be able to do a better job than even I can. So I, I think to speak to that intentionality and, and partnership with other offices is so important. Like, we can't just sit in our space, right? And other offices also need to seek us out. So uh, thank you, Zahas, for making that point, because I think it's, it, I just wanted to drive that home. And just to add one thing, as we're talking about, um, you know, current good practices, I think one thing we can't ever underscore enough is even if students don't use services for identi identity-based services, organizations, or centers, just them visibly being on campus sends a strong message. And through work I did in my own research and with the National Study of LGBT2 Success, just the visual presence and knowing that they're on campus sends a strong message to students queer Latinx students that, you know, if there's intersectionality work going on, they see it going on, that, you know, this is a place where I belong. So I think it's important to acknowledge just the strong um, impact, just the visible presence. Um. Oh, no, I think we've lost Trace. Okay, we'll, we'll come back to him, hopefully, if, if uh, he reconnects. So, um, Ray, I think some of the things that I've heard bubbling up as a part of this conversation also really, I think, necessitates the professional support that we want to receive across um, the country and across the world, really, with our professional associations. And I know you are the chair right now of ACPA's Latino, Latino, Latinx Network, and um, that has served as a source of support for student affairs educators. So maybe you can talk a little bit about how you've addressed the complexity of race and ethnicity, gender and sexual identities. Sure, thanks Heather. And I think in many ways, we're one of the five networks within the Coalition on Multicultural Affairs. So we work closely together, but I think in many ways, we see ourselves as that conduit for La Familia. You know, at our most recent convention in Montreal, we had a hundred student affairs, Latinx professionals in one room. You know, it goes to Dora's point about there's a lot of young individuals wanting to find their place. And I think the uh, LN, as we, for short, provides that opportunity. What can we do to raise these issues within the association? How do we ensure that our voices are involved in the leadership process, whether it be at the governing board level, the involvement level, on the convention planning level? Um, I think that's very critical. And in many ways, they're seeing the work that we're doing. Um, for example, uh, one of our director members, Rick Montelongo, has a writing group for our Latinx colleagues. It's an opportunity for us to give back and grow our own. But when it comes to gender identity expression, you know, I think we as a network have had to look back at our own spaces. It was at the Indianapolis conference in 2014 where we got called out for the fact that some of our spaces we're not inclusive, we're not open. And I think we had to really have some deep self-reflection about what does that mean? Um, thinking about familia, oftentimes those that are outsiders don't know some of the things that we do and it forces us to really think differently about what we needed to do to ensure that our spaces were open to others um, throughout the diaspora and, and those pieces. So I want to thank Dora. Dora was part of our directorate and you know she helped to raise that issue and I think we're at a different point today 
where you know this past year we've changed our name to include the Latinx. We have two advocacy chairs. We've developed an inclusive language brochure. It's part of our discourse of what can we do to ensure that our spaces are much more open and inclusive um, so that we can be those role models for our Latinx colleagues that are coming up. So that's the role that we play. Um, and our hope is that we can continue to do that in moving forward. And there's certainly a lot more work than we can do. We have a directorate of 23 individuals from throughout the country. And our hope is to continue to engage via Twitter, Facebook, etc. What can we do? Um, and also to educate folks at the convention through intentional programs. So if you're going to go to ACPA 17 in Columbus, you know there's going to be a Latinx um, Leadership Institute as a pre-con workshop. What can we do to give back um, to ensure that you know during these difficult times, what we're finding is many of our peers are the only ones on their campuses. Our hope is that they can t reach out to us as a network to be a part of that broader whole for support. And now that we know that we now have eight other colleagues as part of this webinar that we can include and, and, and use those resources as well. Marcella, do you want to talk about other associations too? I know you've been involved with NASA's initiatives too. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, I, I also um, I, I want to start also by recognizing the moment, right, about um, queer and trans Latinx higher ed professionals sort of like speaking out. There's a reason why there's so many people on this panel, and it's because we come with a village. Mm -hmm. So I, I want to emphasize this, right? So sort of this um, pushback that happened. Um, with ACPA is also happening within NASPA. Um, some of us here are actually, you know, sort of the troublemakers behind that push with NASPA. But I, I want to highlight um, that this is happening across institutions across the board, right? I, I want to say also that we have been here. Um, have we been seen is a different question. Have we been included is a different question. Have we been invited is a different question. Um, but we are going to take up space in ways that perhaps we had not. Um, taking a visible space before. So uh, the wave is coming. Um, put your shorts on because you might get wet. So I think um, we are going to revamp, again, the way that student affairs and higher higher education institutions have served us, right? Not just um, at each of the individual institutions, but also on our campuses. Um, so NASPA last year, a few of us did um, really a piece, again, around healing and testimonio and honoring one of our ancestors. Um, I got to give Manuela a shout out. I got to give Abrana a shout out. Um, Brianna, uh, myself, um, we really revamped um, what claiming space meant for us, and and we are going to have a horizontal leadership pipeline. It's yeah, just my effort. I was just adding it. <laughs> yeah, no, go ahead. So that that's really just what I want to say. There's parallel processes going on right now across the nation, and and I just think we've got to give recognition. Um, we've got to give a call out to that. Um, just get with it. That's pretty much what I'm saying. I want to add a piece about the word familia. Um, and it, it's a word that I have often heard um, both the NASPA Latino knowledge community use and the ACPA uh, community use. And, and I think sometimes we say, well, hey, we're, we're a familia. This is all familia. And, and we've got to recognize, too, that for sometimes familia isn't a safe space for folks. Um, and that just because we say this is a familia 
doesn't make it a, a, a safe space, an inclusive space uh -huh. for everybody. Um, and so I, I want to like caution us on 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 using that, um, and not to say that we can't we can't use that word. And I think sometimes we just say we're familia, we're all good here. Uh, when in reality, um, we're not, right? We've got stuff that we've got to be addressing in our professional networks. So let's talk, take it to the online space, too. I mean, we have a number of people who are engaging in our back channel today. There are certainly other places that folks gather and share knowledge around student affairs online, Facebook, et cetera. Um, Brianna, how do we move those conversations from be, being places of pain and hurt and harm, potentially, to places of support? Yeah, I, I think most recently I noticed for the Student Affairs Professionals Facebook group, um, that group can be uh, a mess sometimes, <laughs> just to name it. Um, but I remember when uh, Orlando had just happened, and there were a lot of white, queer, and trans folks who were literally posting something that says, I am allowed to take up space. Like they were literally posting that. And that struck a chord with me um, because afterwards I remember posting, and I did, never post in that group. I haven't posted in that group since undergrad. And I was like, hey, just, just a reminder, this was an attack on queer, trans, Latinx, and black bodies. And there was mostly support from that. There were a few folks who um, weren't as supportive, but um, I was not going to go into the educational route for that because I was trying to save my time and energy. Um, and I think. Something that's really important is for folks to think about the tangible and the practical when doing activist work. And so there was, a, during marriage equality time, um, there was a little meme that came out from Ralphie from The Simpsons that had a little rainbow over him, and he said, I'm helping. And really thinking about not changing your profile picture, what is that doing for me? Nothing. That is doing nothing for me. And so really engaging in the community and activism and how could you go into these grassroots spaces, not to take up space, but to be in solidarity and to do practical work that's creating progress. And so I think that's important when engaging in social media is what else are you doing? Awesome. I completely agree with you. I think that's really critical. It's one thing to say uh, you're going to do better. It's another thing to actually do better. Julio, I want to um, turn to you about kind of summer and being away from campus, and we have lots of students who weren't on our campuses when the um, Orlando shooting happened. Um, what, are, what are the opportunities, potentially, that lie within our student affairs work to help students once, once they come back for fall to re um, respond and process? Oh, mute. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you for naming that. Um, you know, uh, the, the, the whole incident with Orlando was particularly hard for me. Um, I know that many of the folks that may be even engaging now are probably still living through a lot of that down there. Um, you know, having lived there, having worked at some of the schools that the students um, attended and lived, you know, pretty close to where that happened, it was pretty striking for me. Um, and uh, knowing some of the people involved made it even harder and sharing these identities it's you know it's it's a, it's a shared grief that we all go through um, and for many of us as student affairs professionals we are on our campuses where we you know may have had some responses to it from our institutions may not have may have been happy with those responses may not have been um, and some of our students and maybe faculty or other staff may not have been on our campuses they may have been in other spaces where they may not be um, 
out, right? They may be home, wherever home may be for them. There may be at internships where they can't be out at work. They may be in communities where they cannot be out and they cannot grieve this experience. Um, coming back in the fall, some of us may be starting in September, um, thinking about the opportunities that exist there, right? We are, if you want to kind of loop it into existing things that are going on, um, some easy, easy entry points. If you want to go into uh, like Latinx Heritage Month between September and October, that's one way to wrap it in, right? Indigenous Peoples Day and Coming Out Day are pretty much back to back. They are back to back. That's another entry point into having this conversation in naming how in coming out, you know, embracing the opportunity to come out through this national holiday that we've kind of claimed for ourselves, but also realizing that a lot of the folks that were killed in this incident we're outed through death, right? And now not everybody has the opportunity to be out in these spaces. So to also give room for that, right? Those are collaborations that folks can make across offices between queer spaces, Latinx spaces. You know, the Black Students Union can be a part of this as well, part of these conversations. These are opportunities to involve absolutely everybody can have a place at the table for this. Um, dedicated programming, another remembrance ceremony. If you want to make altares on your campuses, if you're advocating for policy reform at your institutions that could be more inclusive, these are all opportunities for you to bring this in. It might not be overt, it might not be in your face, but there are ways for you to include this as a part of the thread uh, and as you're, you're building this fabric of inclusion. So I, so I think um, um, kind of final thoughts, I recognize that we're getting close on the end of our time. Um, but I, Ray, I want to also recognize that we have folks who are watching today who want to continue the conversation, who may be talking within a staff group or watching this today within a staff group. You know, what are some further questions and topics that uh, we all can explore, uh, whether we're with a group of people right now or not, um, as we debrief and um, discuss what we talked about today? Well, I think uh, Julio mentioned a number of those already as we think about programs that are coming up, but really thinking about who are our Latinx students? Are they graduating? Are they being successful on our campuses? You know, some of us may work on campuses that are designated Hispanic serving institutions, minority serving institutions. What does that mean? Is it just we have the population, are we being intentional in the types of services that we're providing? Do we know this data? And I, could, I would argue that some of us have no idea what the makeup of our students are, what they're doing, and what can we do to be more successful. And I think that that adds a wrinkle in terms of what can we do to ensure that they are comfortable. Are we asking the students these questions? You know, here at Santa Clara, we have a multicultural center, 10 different cultural groups. But we often wonder, how well does that multicultural center work closely with our Rainbow Resource Center? What does it mean to be on a religious campus talking about LGBT-related issues? Being on a Jesuit campus, what does that mean when at the Ignatian Q, all of these Jesuit LGBTQ students are coming together and talking about what does faith mean when I talk about my gender identity and expression. So I think this is an opportunity for our colleagues to reflect about what can we do um, to look at our uh, Latinx students um, as well as um, and what can we do to better support not only our students but what about our faculty and staff. This is not solely the purview of student affairs but how are we involving our faculty our staff and our alumni in the collective work that we're doing to better ensure that our students are successful. Great, thank you so much. So 
we're going to share final thoughts, have each of you kind of go through um, just really quickly. And then one resource, and we have our back channel folks um, ready to tweet out these resources that you um, would like to share. Uh, so Julio, we're going to start with you. Any final thoughts? Oh my gosh, uh, I, have a, I have several. Um, I would say, you know, to really keep in mind everything that folks have shared around ways to uh, to cater and care for your students, your peers, your colleagues, just hear people out, right? Like that's one way that you can, I guess, essentially take up space without taking up space, right? You're giving them the space to speak. You're giving them the space to, to share, right? There's opportunities for you to work together. Um, you know, we are just one small, small slice of the pie of the entire um, realm that's out there of networks of people that you can, you know, work with and support. Great. Ray, back to you. Sure. I think for me, um, I look at the context, you know, Trace talked about the ecology. We live in a very interesting time in the United States and globally. And I think that we have to consider those dynamics and what we're doing. And I think there's a lot of fear out there. There's a lot of mistrust. But I think that we need to be willing to have these conversations. They're going to be difficult, but we need to move forward. Because if we just remain in our silos and be fearful, that's going to lead to some, I think, serious consequences down the road. So I think it's important that we be open and have these conversations and not let fear get in the way. I agree. Marcella. Oh, mute. Uh. Um, as, <laughs> oh my gosh, as uh, Ray was talking about fear, I was actually thinking about Dora in a workshop uh, that you did about um, coraje, right, which is a nice uh, mix of courage and rage. Um, so I think right now it's really about how do I utilize my rage? Uh, how do I utilize my rage? How do I utilize and channel it, I think, in a more productive manner? I think um, this thing about um, being a change agent and data, um, I, I want to talk a little bit for a section about how the University of California did it because the University of California actually does collect data, right, particularly on sexual identity. Um, and we got hit hard by it with the legislature. We got trampled um, through the state of California, but we were committed to doing it anyway. So we have admissions data. So I think that um, that is something that can happen in an institution. It, it's not a, a, it's a challenge, but it can be overcome. So I think uh, I've got a lot of feelings post-Orlando. I've got a lot of feelings uh, now about my um, queer and trans Latinx community, not just in the state, but across the nation. Um, Brianna knows that I show up for people, that I am heart driven, that I am ride or die, and I will roll through for my community. So I think um, I, I want to put that out there for folks that you can expect that, I think, from some of the folks in this panel, and particularly with those of us at NASPA that are going to propose a QT Latinx healing space. So look out for that. Um, and my heart goes out to everybody that supported um, this webinar, and for those of you that are going to see it later, um, I enthusiastically uh, look forward to working with everybody that really cares about this subject. Yeah. Thank you so much. Keith. Mute. Uh. Apologies. <laughs> um, well, I, first, I, I just wanted to say thanks, Heather, for, um, I think, acknowledging and recognizing some of the hurt that came from the previous episode and then creating and, and taking 
the action of creating the space so that folks could have their voices elevated um, around these issues that so often go unheard, right? Um, so I want to just appreciate that that's something that we were able to do. And I think final thoughts for me are just, this is ongoing work, but understand that this is ongoing work that are people's lives and their lived experiences. And so sometimes that work is like, I don't want to talk to you, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> sometimes that work is I'm going to retreat to my safe space, um, which might be my office and my cube, and I'm going to be closed and don't, don't bother me. But there is a way to be present. Um, like was mentioned earlier, there's a way to to take up space without taking up space, right? Um, and be present for colleagues that, you know, when, when things happen in this world that are really tragic and, and problematic, but also be there on the regular because those problematic and tra tragic events only highlight some of the things that we deal with on a daily basis at a different magnitude. So for me, uh, that's, that's kind of where I would like to see colleagues. I challenge colleagues specifically because at the end of the day, we're the ones who are working with the students directly and facing them and higher-ups and individuals who, who have some responsibility over how we engage. So um, those are some of the things that kind of are ruminating in my mind. I got a lot of other thoughts, but I can be here all day. But thank you. I really appreciate the opportunity. Thanks, Keith. Brianna. I just also want to say thank you for this opportunity and being here. And I was telling Heather earlier that um, that was unfortunate that folks were not in the conversation previously, while at the same time, I think that we have gathered a different kind of audience potentially, and a different kind of empowerment that we now are experiencing. Um, and I also want to say, in terms of approaching QD Latinx identities and issues for practitioners, that um, I've said this before at the NASPA pre-conference Latino Knowledge Community Institute, was this is a professional development opportunity for you. So irregardless of your personal beliefs or your religious beliefs, whatever it may be, you need to do your job at the end of the day. And you're not able, if you're not able to do that, then you need to recognize that you're not able to do that and educate yourself and get over it. Because um, we're in this field for a reason and it's to serve the students. And if we're not doing that, then we're not being effective. Um, and I would say the, the one resource that I did put out there um, is uh, the National Discrimination Survey for um, the Center for National Center for Transgender Equality. Um, they just did a national survey last year that was done by um, some folks that I, I know, and there's a breakdown of race, and the Latinx one is one that I'd encourage folks to look at if they want to see those rates. Um, and also, lastly, I just want to say, um, please ask your colleagues, how are you doing? Because one thing that Marcella did is show up for the vigil that we had here, and I really appreciated that, because so often we're, we're the ones that have to do this work, right? It's expected of us to meet the status quo every day, and I think that's hard when we're also in pain. And so checking in with each other is very important. Um, and last but not least, I just want to give a shout out to my department that's watching right now, my mom who's watching, Papa, and um, all my friends and colleagues that are around the country engaging in this discussion. Thank you. Great. Dora. Um, yeah, so um, Latinx students are, are coming to a campus near you, right? So put your shorts on, like Marcela said, um, and we've got to really think about what are we doing to support the intersectional experiences of all students, but, you know, specifically given this topic of our Latinx students. Um, because of the rise in population, that's what we're going to be seeing on our college campuses, and, and we're not ready. And so at every single office, at every single level, we've got to be talking about what are we doing to support this. And if you're not talking about it, you're too late. Um, because they're they're here now and they're going to continue to show up on our campuses. Um, I also want to give uh, thanks to colleagues on this panel. It's been great to share space and time um, with you 
and, and be in community with you. And uh, certainly, like uh, Marcela has said, I'm here to serve as a resource for folks um, if further questions are needed. In terms of other resources, Excelencia and Education is a resource that's a great resource doing amazing research on uh, college campuses and the experiences of Latino students. Thanks, y'all. Thank you so much, Dora. Mm -hmm. All right, Trace. Yeah, thank you, like everyone else said, for the opportunity. I learned so much just from the other panelists just in our last hour together, so thank you for that. Um, one, this work is hard. Two, it's complex. Um, so just acknowledge that, that it's not going to be easy. There's not going to be one easy fix for, you know, supporting queer Latinx students. Like, not a one-size-fits-all for campus. It's not a silver bullet. Just to talk about ecologies, you have to address all those layers of the ecology when supporting students. As far as resources, and to just complicate this more, this isn't just an on-campus issue. Um, the resource I provided was the Movement Advance Advancement Project. Um, had a report they issued in 2013 about LGBT workers of color, and in that they cited that LGBT youth of color are the less likely to go to college. So this isn't just you know students we have on our campus. It's, this is a pipeline issue just getting them to college. So we need to think about not just the students who are on campus, but what, who are those students we aren't even getting to our campus. And how do we create a space for them? Thanks so much, Okay. I am having a bit of difficulty because the acknowledgement, again, to everyone as um, just being thankful for everyone that's here and quite honestly, just the healing power that this has had over me and my time being a part of this panel and recognizing the healing power just being able to share our historias, our testimony, our comunidad. I'm just so, so thankful for being here and for being a part of this. And thank you, Heather, for bringing us all together in this formalized way. Um, I think one of the things that I want to leave, and I included a resource to kind of talk through about this, embrace the messiness. This is going to be a consistent conversation. This is going to be a consistent uphill, around the hill, down the hill, through the hill conversation. But we need to be talking about more intentionally, not in the sense of, I need the words, I need the tech terminology, I need to use this particular placement of A, B, C equation to make things happen. It's being able to say, if a student walks through my door and is trying to acknowledge with me, I'm finding my indigenous roots, and I've also recognized that I'm in that connection to Latinx, and I also have to recognize that our Latinx experience was colonized. How do I embrace these shared heritages? And it's a real experience. More and more students are exploring who they are. More professionals are exploring who they are. How we just honor and recognize that if we're all willing to kind of walk through it together, whether it feel like that sinking sand or if it's just some muddiness to it all, that that's what's going to make us better, that's what's going to make us greater, and that's what's going to be able to help really revamp and really continue on in a new frontier for student affairs. Thank you so much. Uh, just to add my appreciation, I can't tell all of you as much as I really, really want to say that um, the time today has been fabulous. I've learned a lot. Um, I see you, I appreciate you, and I hope that we can remain in connection um, past this. So thank you for your time to all of the panelists today. Um, 
just really quickly, uh, uh, I know there's a couple of people still watching. We want to uh, let folks know about our upcoming episodes. We have I, my next episode is actually going to be a reprise of a very another very large panel of student affairs master students two years later. Uh, so revisiting what their experience has been like in the first two years of their um, new professional life. And, and in August, Tony will be talking about mid-level professionals in student affairs with uh, Maureen Wilson and several other scholars and practitioners. There was a new JCSD article that just came out this month. 